Hello Church, our scripture reading today is from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Hey, brothers and sisters, it's really good to be with you, even if it is online. We're going to have the joy of jumping into the Gospel of Matthew together. So wherever you are there in your home or wherever you may be watching or listening to this, if you can, go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word and find your place there in chapter 5 of Matthew. And we're going to continue in this great, great section of Scripture together. We'll kind of set up what we're going to be looking at uh, this way. Literally today, uh, out in my front yard, I was digging a ditch. (laughs) I was digging a ditch to run a pipe from our gutter to reroute water one place to another. But the point is, I learned really quick, when you're digging a ditch, you're going to run into rocks. And when you run into rocks, your progress is pretty much stopped or at least hindered. When you're digging along, there I am digging with my mattock and I encounter these rocks. Again, I'd like to ignore the rocks altogether. But the fact is, those rocks really hinder or impede my progress. Now, I say all that to say, discipleship and maturity and growth is a lot like that. The reality is that our growth in maturity and our growth in Christ-likeness is often hindered by these rocks or even boulders in our life called lies, things that are simply untrue. Things that we hear, things that we've been taught, things that we hold on to that are just not true. And the reality is these untruths in our lives are like those boulders in our path. They hinder our progress. Here's the reality. Some of you right now are hindered in your relationships and lies you are believing is the difference between healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships. Some of you right now, lies you are believing are the difference between growing and maturity in Christ-likeness and immaturity. These boulders of lies in your life are hindering your progress. And here's the reality as well. Some of you even, because of lies you are believing right now, it's literally the difference between heaven and hell. It's a big deal. Truth advances when lies are destroyed. Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is regarded as the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world. Jesus, the king, is proclaiming kingdom realities. Jesus is teaching about kingdom life. This we've talked about this countercultural, unnatural kingdom life. And Jesus is declaring incredible truths in the Sermon on the Mount. But also throughout the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been reading through it, you realize something else that Jesus does throughout the Sermon on the Mount is he exposes, he confronts, and he is destroying the commonly held lies of his day. 
Jesus does that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we're going to get to chapter 5, or the end of chapter 5 next week. Jesus uses the phrase over and over. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Here's what you've been taught. Here's what you believe. Here's what you're wrongly holding on to. There's a boulder of untruth in your life. You have heard that it was said. Jesus says, but I say to you. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is doing that. Now, one of the reasons Jesus had to do that is because the people of his day were heavily influenced by a group of people called the scribes and the Pharisees. If you've read through your Gospels at all, you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew with us, you know often there's some conflict between Jesus the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and the Pharisees were heavily influential in Jesus' day. He's going to mention them right here in verse 20 that we're going to look at in just a minute. People of Israel were influenced by this group, this group known as the scribes. And the scribes in that day could be defined as this. They were the professional students and the teachers of Old Testament Scripture. Uh, they were seen and, and they were perceived. They were, if you will, the voices of the day. They were the ones on all the podcasts, if you will. They were the ones at all the conferences. They were the ones writing all the books. They were the voices of the day. They were the teachers of the day, these scribes. And then they were often joined with this group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees really represented a movement of the day, reformers, if you will. They were, they were meticulously committed to the rigorous practice of the Old Testament law. In their minds, they were pulling the people of Israel back to the Old Testament scriptures. They saw themselves as set apart from everyone else. They led a movement. These scribes and Pharisees in that day were perceived as heroes. We, if you hear of scribes and Pharisees today, you tend to want to think of guys running around in black hats as those are the bad guys, those are the bad guys. In that day, they were the heroes. In fact, if you grew up in Jesus' day here, you were naming your kids after the scribes and the Pharisees. Everyone, this is important, I want you to hear this. Everyone in that day, for the most part, considered the scribes and the Pharisees the examples of godliness and the picture of what it meant to be righteous. Quick examples. You're a Pharisee. You had Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized. Wow. You're a Pharisee. It was thought of that nobody could pray like the Pharisees. In fact, they would stand on the street corners and then they would offer these uh, flowery prayers and everyone watched and everyone thought, man, they are so godly. Pharisees, they really honored the Sabbath uh, in, in fact, they honored it so much they counted the number of steps they could walk on the Sabbath. Fasting, Jews fasted, Pharisees, twice a week. Giving, Pharisees tithed off everything, even their garden spices. Purity, you're a Pharisee, you, ha you have nothing to do with the sinners and especially the group of people called the tax collector. It was perceived, it was thought, it was considered in that day Scribes and Pharisees were the example of godliness, the example of righteousness. And oh, by the way, it's important to know, the Pharisees really loved people thinking about them that way. They loved people thinking how well they prayed. They loved people thinking how godly and how righteous they were. Now, I said all that to set up, really, verse 20 of chapter 5, and then we're going to walk through verses 17 back down through verse 20. 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is about to drop a bombshell. And you understand why it's a bombshell. He's about to explode a commonly held misconception of that day about the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 20, Jesus says this, For I tell you, truth, I'm getting ready to say here, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, is far greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a bombshell that Jesus drops in his day. He's saying to all those who were looking to these Pharisees, he says, that kind of righteousness that you've seen practiced, that kind of righteousness that they are holding on to, that righteousness doesn't even come close to the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven bombshell. Now out of that, I'm going to draw a big truth and then we're going to try to give you some big ideas. And it's really, this is, understanding this is so important to understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount. Here's in a sense what Jesus is saying. God demands an exceeding kind of righteousness. Not that kind of righteousness that you've seen modeled, taught, lived out by the Pharisees. A surpassing, a greater and exceeding kind of righteousness. You can think of righteousness here as the idea of our position before God, our standing before God. You can think of righteousness as a heart issue, being fully alive to God. You can think of righteousness here as the actions then that flow out of that. A righteous kind of life flows from a righteous heart. Jesus says, what you've seen in the scribes and Pharisees doesn't even come close to the righteousness that's demanded for the kingdom of heaven. So leading into that bombshell, uh, verses 17 through 19. So that, let's back up and let's talk a little bit about what Jesus is saying here in verses 17 through 19 together. There's a conflict that, that goes on. And again, you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you see this conflict all over the place between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, look, that righteousness, not even close to the righteousness God demands. Scribes and Pharisees, they didn't have a high view of Jesus. In fact, they were convinced that Jesus and his disciples didn't even honor God's law. They were convinced that Jesus and his followers, those kingdom followers, if you will, they didn't, they didn't know God. They didn't have a right standing with God. They didn't even honor the law of God. How do you know that? Verse 17, here's what Jesus says. Do not think. Why does he say that? Because many were thinking. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the word abolish means to, uh, uh, to loosen or to diminish or to relieve the responsibility of something. The, the charge here is that you're undermining the authority of God's law. You're not honoring God's law, Jesus, and neither are your followers. Jesus said, listen, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. He says, I've not come to abolish... I've come to fulfill incredible statement here out of the lips of Jesus. Again, it was perceived in that day, and you see the conflict throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of that day were convinced that Jesus and his followers were lawbreakers. They were far from righteous. They were far from godly. Why did they think that? Well, a couple episodes really quick. Matthew 12, we'll get there in a few weeks. Jesus, the Bible says this, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, 
Remember, Sabbath day is a big deal to the Pharisees and scribes. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. Verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw it, uh uh-oh, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You're lawbreakers. They were taking heads of grain and they were twisting them in their hands and they were eating as they walked through the grain fields. The Pharisees and scribes had determined, wait a minute, you can't do that because that's work on the Sabbath. You are breaking the Sabbath. Another example, really quick, Matthew 15, 1 through 2. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said to him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They're not washing their hands before they eat. The Pharisees had determined the right way to keep the law of God. Jesus and his disciples were breaking it because they weren't washing their hands in the proper way before they ate. They were lawbreakers. Jesus responds to these guys. He says, look, we're not playing by your interpretation of Scripture. We're not playing by your man-made rules. He says in chapter 15 of Matthew, again, we'll get there in a few weeks, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. Now listen to this conflict. You hypocrites! You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah speak of you, speaking directly to the scribes and Pharisees, well did Isaiah speak of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips. They say all the right things, but but their heart is far from me. Verse 9, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, you've elevated your teachings, your interpretation of the law to be on par with Scripture. And Jesus says, I and my disciples are not playing by that rule. He says, we're not abolishing the law of God as you call us to do. We're just not listening to your man-made rules. Why this response from Jesus? Really quick. Well, again, the scribes and Pharisees were devoted to rightly observing God's law, and they wanted to make sure everybody else observed God's law. So they had what what was called a a fence around the law. They came up with rule and practice and interpretation to take God's perfect righteous word and then give application to it and then hold up these applications as binding. So they had volumes and volumes of these man-made teachings, the Mishnah and the Talmud and all these books to say, okay, the Bible says keep the Sabbath. Here's a hundred different ways to There are a hundred different applications of that, and you better keep these applications if you're really going to keep the Sabbath. For example, you keep the Sabbath, we're going to help you with that. We're going to tell you how many steps you can go on the Sabbath. It's called a Sabbath day's journey. You can't work on the Sabbath, so we're going to tell you exactly what that means. You can't light fire on the Sabbath. You know why? It's work. And you sure can't help a sick person on the Sabbath because you have to carry their pallet. That's why Jesus got in so much trouble when he healed often on the Sabbath because it was considered work. In other words, here's what they did. They were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here was the result. The result was this, that the spirit of God's law, obedience to God's righteous word out of a love for God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your might, that heart had been replaced with a meticulous, mindless, heartless rule-following watch that was not honoring to God and was wearisome to the people of Israel. Jesus shows up, perfect righteous heart toward the Father, perfect understanding and interpretation of the law, and basically said, we're not playing by your man-made games. We're not honoring your man-made commandments. We're going to honor the righteous law of the Lord. 
He said, verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill. Now, it's a very important statement here in verse 17. I want us to make sure we get what Jesus is saying because it helps us in our understanding of who he is and so much of the New Testament. Jesus is saying in light of all this conflict and argument with the scribes and Pharisees, you think I'm disregarding God's law. You think I'm trying to undermine God's law. Verse 17, he says, no, I've not come to undermine or disregard or dis disassemble God's word. I, Jesus declares about himself, have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Massive statement by Jesus. The word fulfill here means to finish, to bring to completion, to accomplish, to give full expression of something. Jesus is declaring that in all of history, he and he alone is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. <laughs> the scribes and Pharisees were saying, you don't even honor the law. Jesus says, honor it. I fulfill it. It's all about me. It all points to me. I'm the only one who will ever perfectly keep the law. In fact, I'm the only one who will ever perfectly keep the spirit of the law from a heart of love of God and love of man. You think I'm abolishing the law? I'm the only one to ever perfectly fulfill the law. This is huge in our understanding of the New Testament. Jesus, or, or Matthew, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, uses the fulfillment formula. This happened to fulfill in the life of Jesus what was spoken by the prophet hundreds of years ago. You see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. There's a lot here, and we could spend hours and hours on this. I'm going to try to summarize it because it's really important to understand what Jesus is saying about himself. D.A. Carson helps us with that. I'll put this quote up. You can, you can see it. He says this, Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament in that it all points to him. Jesus said that of himself, by the way, in Luke 24. Back to Carson, he says, not only in its specific predictions of the Messiah, every prediction in the Old Testament from the place of his birth, his virgin birth, his life, the, the tribe of Judah, that he would be bruised, that he would be the suffering servant, that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of those predictions of the Old Testament, Jesus perfectly fulfills. Perfectly. He said that, Carson says, not only that he fulfills the specific predictions of the Messiah, but also its sacrificial system. All the lambs that were ever sacrificed in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, all of those point to me. We don't sacrifice lambs anymore. We, we don't, we don't, you don't come to church on Sunday and we slaughter sheep and goats, right? Why? Jesus perfectly fulfills all of them. Behold, the Lamb of God is here. He fulfills all of that. Carson says the many events in the, whole, in the history of Israel foreshadowed the life of Jesus as God's true son. The exodus of Egypt, out of Egypt, for example, is only fully understood by the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. One greater than Moses is here. The life of Solomon in the Old Testament is only understood by Jesus. Jesus said one greater than Solomon is now here and over and over. All of the stories and foreshadowings of the Old Testament, Jesus perfectly fulfills all of those. He perfectly obeyed every law. 
Every single law, moral law of the Old Testament was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled, Jesus perfectly obeyed every commandment of the Old Testament. His life exemplified that. His behavior pattern set forth, in, or he exemplified the behavior pattern set forth in the wisdom literature. All the wisdom of Proverbs lived out perfectly. Anybody ever lived that out perfectly? One. His name is Jesus. Carson finishes, Jesus' gospel of the kingdom does not replace the Old Testament, but rather fulfills it as Jesus' life and ministry, coupled with his interpretation. We'll look more at that next week. Complete and clarify God's intent and meaning of the entire Old Testament. Wow. Scribes and Pharisees, Jesus, you don't even honor God's law. You're trying to undermine God's law. Jesus declares here definitively in verse 17, no, no, you miss it. I perfectly fulfill the law and the prophets. All of the Old Testament's perfectly fulfilled. It's said another way, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, verse 13 says this, and I, I just got to be honest, this is one of those verses that just gripped my heart this week. Matthew says this, For all the prophets and the law prophesied. They predicted who was coming. They predicted what was coming until John. John didn't predict anything. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus himself and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John didn't give any prophecies, didn't have to. The fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy was standing in front of him in the person of Jesus. Wow. Jesus himself, John chapter 5, verse 39, said this. You search the scriptures, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he said, you search the scriptures because you think it is in them that you have eternal life? It is they, Jesus said, that bear witness of me. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is declaring incredible truth. It's vitally important for you and I, people of faith. We, can we ever perfectly fulfill all the commandments of the Old Testament? Never. But we have faith in the one who did. Our faith is in King Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled all of the commandments, all of the righteous laws and statutes of the Word of God. Incredible. He goes on, verse 18. He says, you think I've come to abolish the law? I perfectly fulfill it. Verse 18, he goes on, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot. Your Bible may say jot or tittle. The point is, the smallest stroke in the Hebrew, a jot, a, a, a tittle, or an iota, or a dot, the Hebrew language words are differentiated from one another often by a single dot. And Jesus said, the smallest dot of the written word of God will not pass away until all is accomplished. You think you have a high view of the law of God? He says to the Pharisees, I believe and will uphold and ultimately accomplish every single part of it, even down to the smallest jot or tittle, iota or dot. By the way, verse 18 is why we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. That sounds pretty fancy. What does that mean? We believe every word. 
every word of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, 66 books of the Bible, we believe came from the mouth of God and will be accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away before God's Word will pass away. Why do you believe that? Because that's what Jesus believed. And we're on Team Jesus. Scribes and Pharisees, you're trying to abolish God's Word. Your, your, your disciples, they're not righteous. They don't honor the word of God. Jesus says, I perfectly fulfill it. I believe every jot and tittle. Verse 19, he goes on quickly. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? See, the Pharisees had figured out a way to say they were honoring the word of God, but in practice, here's what they found a way to do. The Pharisees would honor the parts of God's word that they liked and they would skirt around the parts they didn't like. They would read and they would emphasize the things that made them feel good and that they could go and live in front of everybody and everybody would go, oh wow, how godly you are. But the things that demanded deep sacrifice and the things that had to come from a heart of love of the Father that the Pharisees could not have, they skirted around somehow. Let me give you a quick example. Matthew chapter five, uh, 15, we read a little bit of it earlier. Again, we'll read it later as we read through. The Bible says this, we know that the law of God calls us to honor our father and our mother. The spirit behind that, these gifts that have been given by God to us, this honoring of our parents and all that's involved in that. Up to that point, the Pharisees would agree with the letter of the law but they would punt the spirit of the law. So the Pharisees, they had something called Corban in that day. Corban was a way that you could take all of your money or all of your savings and you could pronounce Corban over it and then no one could touch it. So what they would do is when their parents would get older and their parents needed their help and their parents needed their financial support, the scribes and Pharisees would say, well, hold on. Sure, we want to honor you, but you know what? We've pronounced Corban on all our money and it's all for God over here in our nice bank account. Sorry, mom and dad, can't help you, can't honor you. And Jesus saw through it. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, five, but you say, whoever says to his father and his mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. Jesus says, you whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites. He says, you honor the things of the law you want and you punt the things that are uncomfortable or difficult for you. And he goes on in verse, end of verse 19, he says, but on the other hand, speaking of kingdom disciples, he says, whoever does them and teaches them the law of God will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is declaring a reality. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is measured by wholehearted, love-motivated obedience from a heart alive to the word of God. We're going to look more about that next week. What does that look like? Matthew 5, 21 through 48, how, to, how, how does the word of God apply in our life? What does that look like as one's declared righteous? How do we live righteous? We'll look at that a little bit next week. And then back to the bombshell, verse 20. Following all that, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. God demands an exceeding kind of righteousness. So we've seen the conflict that exists here of what the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of and what Jesus is declaring to be a reality about this Pharisee kind of righteousness. Pastor Mike, what, what exactly, I, I'm getting bits and pieces, but exactly what 
is this Pharisee kind of righteousness versus this kind of surpassing or exceeding righteousness that Jesus is talking about in verse 20. And take just a couple minutes and let's dig a little bit deeper into that. What is this Pharisee kind of righteousness? I'm going to show you several different passages, a lot of them out of Matthew, one out of Luke, where Jesus is going to very clearly expose this Pharisee type of righteousness. The first is in Luke chapter 18, three quick verses. Jesus is telling a parable. And his parable, again, is to expose this false righteousness that everyone thought was true righteousness. He says this, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. There's a little hint into false righteousness. He says he trusted in themselves, this self-righteousness, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then he's going to use an example of a Pharisee and of all people to offend the Pharisees, a tax collector. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Everyone would say, yeah, the godly one. And the tax collector, oh, the ungodly one. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand righteousness. Says verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. By the way, there's something called comparative righteousness, meaning my righteousness is based on someone else I can find that's worse than me. That was the Pharisee's understanding. I'm not like these guys. They had forgotten that their righteousness is compared to the infinite, perfect righteousness of God and how infinitely separate we are in our sinfulness because of the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God. They really like comparing themselves to people around them. That's comparative righteousness. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. He's praying to God and he's reminding God of all the good things he's done. This works-based, trusting in human effort kind of righteousness. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And if you didn't notice, God, I want to remind you of all that. I've Surely that earns me something for you. Jesus is declaring that's Pharisee kind of righteousness. He says some other things. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. He says this, you hypocrites. Speaking to the Pharisees and scribes, he says, Well, did Isaiah speak of you? We looked at this earlier. This people honors me with their lips. They say all the right things, but their heart is far from me. They have a heart dead to God. Nothing they do is from a heart that's alive to God or a heart that's acting out of a love for their father. It's all for show. Verse 9, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. On in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, and again, we'll be there in a few weeks, but Matthew chapter 23 is where Jesus fully exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Just a couple quick verses, verse 25, he says, woe to you. And by the way, if you're reading in your Bible and Jesus says, woe to you, you might want to stop. Woe to you, he says, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. Why? He says, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside in your heart, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. He goes on, verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
You're like whitewashed tombs. He's using an analogy from the day as you're walking into Jerusalem and you're walking into some cities of that day. Often there would be these tombs and they were really important to keep these tombs nice and white and clean. And they would literally go out and bleach these tombs so that we walked in. They would shine brightly and you would forget, by the way, you know what's under those tombs? Dead bones. And he says, you're like that. You look so good on the outside. You say all the right things and all the appearances there. Inside, you are dead. You are full of dead man's bones. Verse 27, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You're still in your sin. So you outwardly appear righteous, outwardly, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. Incredible bit of clarity from Jesus' assessment of the scribes and Pharisees. Again, now you understand the bombshell that Jesus drops and says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to give you two big ideas First one is this, that kind of flow out of all these verses. Big idea number one is this, Pharisee righteousness trusts in self. We saw that, these verses. is dead to God. Outwardly, it may say all the right things, it may do all the right things, but there is a heart, a soul within them that is dead to God. Their motivation is not love for their father. Their motivation is not love for others. It is an external, ritualistic, dead motivation. And it focuses on externals in order to be seen by men. That was the righteousness of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, look, it may look righteous. It may look godly. It may look flowery but it's like a whitewashed tomb. And inside are nothing but dead men's bones. Unless your righteousness exceeds, back to verse 20, that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never be in the kingdom. You'll never be of the kingdom. You'll never be kingdom people. There is a exceeding type of righteousness, kind of righteousness. When Jesus says a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. This word exceeds means a, a different kind of righteousness. I want you to hear this very clearly. He's not saying, you need to do, you need to do more. You, you need to fast. They fast twice a week. If you could fast four times a week, you, you got it. It's not what Jesus is saying. He says, they, they, they can only walk this many steps on the Sabbath. You, you walk only this many. It, it's not it's not greater in quantity. Jesus is saying a different kind of righteousness altogether, namely a righteousness that doesn't come from you, namely a righteousness that you could never achieve, you could never earn, and transforms you from the inside out. What's that righteousness look like? What kind of righteousness is that? I'm going to hear from two people and we're done really quick. Two Pharisees, by the way. Pharisee number one, what is this exceeding righteousness that Jesus is talking about here? John chapter three, there's a Pharisee named 
Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by nine and he was asking Jesus questions and he was listening to the teachings of Jesus. And by the way, he shows up at the end of the Gospel of John, evidently had become a Jesus follower. At this point, he's still asking questions, and he comes, and the Bible says, John chapter 3, verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was not just a Pharisee. He was part of the Sanhedrin, the leaders. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one does these signs that you're doing. Jesus cuts through all his flattery and says, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is declaring something here about this exceeding kind of righteousness to this Pharisee. He's saying, look, there has to be a rebirth. There has to be a heart that is alive to God, not dead to God. It's not anything you can do. It's something done to you. You must be born again. There must be a spiritual transformation. And George Whitfield is one of my heroes. He was a pastor in days gone by, a preacher, a a traveling evangelist. His favorite message and his favorite statement was this, you must be born again. You must be born again. And almost every message he ever preached, right here from John 3, he would say, you must be born again. One time someone stopped and asked and said, George Whitfield, why do you constantly declare this statement that you must be born again? You say it all the time. Why? And he said, because you must be born again. That's what Jesus is saying. This kind of surpassing righteousness comes from a heart transformation that God does by his grace to make one alive from the inside out. You must be born again. Another Pharisee. This time a guy I think you've probably heard of. His name was Saul, and then he met Jesus, and his name was transformed to Paul. He he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he, He was a persecutor of the church, of his own testimony. Let's just read his own testimony, chapter 3 of Philippians, beginning in verse 4, very quickly. Paul, a former Pharisee. Paul, give us some help. What is this exceeding, surpassing kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here? Philippians 4, or Philippians 3, verse 4. Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh or to trust in your own fleshly accomplishments when it comes to God, he said, I far more. He said, I I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like all good godly Jews. Of the people of Israel, I, I was of a tribe of Benjamin, an honored tribe. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Man, I kept the meticulous every letter. At least I perceived that I was of the law. I was, I was zealous to keep the law of God. As to zeal, verse 6, a persecutor of the church. In other words, just like the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day, Paul early on believed that Jesus and his followers who were alive then were unrighteous, ungodly, and wanted to undermine the law of God. So he went after him. You know that from the book of Acts. Paul persecuted the church. As to righteousness, he says, verse 6, that's under the law, blameless. I was convinced I was keeping the law and had a righteousness that comes from the law, verse 7. But, then he says, whatever was gain to me, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Translation, when I met Christ and I realized the infinite righteousness of God, and how infinitely short I fell of that righteousness. 
everything I thought I had earned, everything I thought I had done, he said was rubbish in light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and may be found, here's the key, in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Based on the testimony of Nicodemus, the story of Nicodemus, based on what Paul says here, this helps us understand what Jesus means when he says, we must have a righteousness. We must possess a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Big idea number two is this. The righteousness God demands is the very righteousness of Jesus himself. Graciously granted to us based or through faith alone. The kind of righteousness that God demands is not something we could ever earn, not something that we can ever achieve by our rule-keeping or our fastidious following of man-made rules or anything we think we can accomplish. It is something granted by the God of the universe through his Son, Jesus, who became a man perfectly fulfilled the law of God, and then by faith in him and him alone, we are declared to be the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in that's an exceeding kind of righteousness that God demands, possible only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Question as we close for you is this. What type or kind of righteousness do you possess? Is it a righteousness like the Pharisees? Or is it an exceeding type of righteousness that Jesus talks about in chapter 5. Are you trusting in your human accomplishment? Is your heart alive to God? Is there wholehearted desire to obey your king? What type of righteousness do you have? How do you know? Next week we'll look at someone who's been made righteous will live righteously. And that's Matthew 21 through 48. We pray for you. Father, I thank you for the truth of Matthew chapter 5. I thank you for your faithfulness, Jesus, to truth, that you would say something so controversial that unless our righteousness surpasses or is, it, is of an exceeding kind, we'll in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you and you alone make that kind of righteousness possible. 
I praise you that you perfectly fulfill the law of God. I thank you that you and you alone make that kind of righteous possible. You took our sin and you by faith granted us your righteousness that we would be alive to God. We praise you in Jesus' name.